0: This is Helmet Theory Podcast, and you're listening to episode 17. Hey all you cool cats and kittens, I hope you're doing super well. (laughs) I'm totally kidding. Hey guys, welcome to Helmet Theory Podcast, I'm so glad that you're listening. We've got some pretty cool guests tonight, it is tonight here with me. But we've got Jen and Leah from Let's Unravel That podcast. And it is a great conversation about mental health and things like that. So buckle your seatbelts, put your helmets on, and here we go.
1: Cool. All right. So we've got Jen and Leah with us today. Say what's up, y'all.
2: Hey there.
1: This is the biggest group we've ever had on a podcast episode. Four people. Uh, Hopefully. Yeah, we only have three normally, so I guess it's not like it. we blew some record <laughs> away. We have one extra person, but well, you're how, welcome. how are y'all surviving uh, coronavirus and new babies and the whole thing?
2: Well, it's Wednesday night. I'm on my second Venti Caramel Mocha, so you know, we're good.
1: <laughs> so you're doing well, yeah. <laughs>
2: Doing a lot of pressure washing in order to relieve some stress and it works.
0: Oh my gosh. What are you pressure washing? Just the whole house or?
2: uh, The sidewalk. Because you see the most progress the most quickly, you know, because it's kind of black and dingy. And then it turns.
1: Do you ever watch YouTube videos where they do pressure washing or like the little Facebook videos that get shared and it's, it's like this really soothing like people scraping stuff off with a pressure washer or people, I can't think of other examples actually. So this is terrible. Shaving
3: soap. there's, there's videos yes. of people who shave soap and that's supposed to be like meditation and calming. How do
2: you have time, time for
1: that? You make time to man. watch
2: pressure washing on YouTube.
1: You got to take care of your soul, you know? <laughs> All right. So let's get into it. Um, one of the big topics that we've been dying to get to since we started this podcast is sort of around mental health and kind of everything under that umbrella. And y'all know a thing or two about that topic. I think it's safe to say, tell us a little bit about just kind of who you are, what you do, and then, and then maybe, um, and lead into kind of your podcast and a little bit about that as well.
3: Um, I'm Jennifer Henry, and I will celebrate my fifth year as a licensed counselor on Friday. Wow. And, yeah, so I was a nurse for many, many years, stay-at-home mom for many years, and went back later in life um, to get my degree in counseling. That's what I always wanted to do, but didn't do that because for various reasons, and um, I've really enjoyed it. I uh, always leave work glad that counseling's my job, and I don't dread it. Um, which is just crazy to me. Um,
1: so so before, you, before you say anything else, and before Leah, you say anything, I'm, I've always been curious, but I've never asked you. You went from being a nurse to being a counselor. How, how'd that even happen?
3: Well, um, how'd that happen? You know, that's such a hard-to-answer question, but I think that I – I wanted to be a counselor when I was 18 and I was one of those kids that, you know, grew up in conservative Christian church and was a, the good girl and I was always afraid to do wrong and I wanted approval and I was the one that actually asked my parents questions and did what they wanted me to do. I was kind of had a lot of fear, still kind of struggle with that and I was afraid to not follow their advice because they knew, right, things that I'd know. And when I told my dad I wanted to go into psychology, he was like, what in the world are you going to do with a psychology degree? You need to be able to go out and get a job." and, you know, I don't know what you're going to do with a counseling degree. And so I got scared, went into nursing and it fit a lot of my personality. I like science. I like helping people. And um, just later in life, um, I did a, a, some pastoral stuff and um, did some mentoring and, realized that that is really, if I could spend all my free time doing that, I would, and had a friend who said, hey, why haven't you ever thought about going back and doing this? Um, interesting note, I did while I was in graduate school, ask my dad why he discouraged me from doing it. I was like, you know, was it really just about security? And he said, no. He said, you know, he was in the, um, he was a school teacher, school administrator, and he was actually a school counselor for a short stint. And he had a situation where there was a young girl and she was being abused at home. And he brought in the authorities. He tried to help her and nothing changed in the situation. And he actually was worried that then it was going to become worse. And he emotionally and his heart couldn't handle it. And he didn't want me in those kinds of situations. And so it's just really interesting. You know, he's like, I just don't see how you can do that. And I was like, you know, I think I'm just fitted for it. I think I'm, I think it's just who I am. It hurts and it's painful, but I'm fitted for it. And I know that there's going to be heartbreak and intensity and that kind of thing. So it's just really interesting um, hearing that and learning about that later in life when we could have an adult kind of conversation. So that's a really long answer. I don't know if I answered your question, but it's just what I always wanted to do. I wanted to make more money. I wanted to do something with my life after my kids went back to school and I did not want to go back to nursing and I did not want to go back to sales and I had done both of those. And so I thought, you know what, if I'm going to work for the rest of my life, I'm going to enjoy what I do. And so I went back to grad school with a two-year-old and I was, you know, in my early 40s when I graduated. So it was really different, but I don't regret one minute of it.
0: That's that's really interesting to me because I have, I have a psychology degree and my dad did not, or my mom and dad did not give me any flack and I ended up not doing anything
3: with it, <laughs> <laughs> it just because it's how you just don't know anything at 18 it's just right. impossible
1: so what about you Leah
2: well my journey was quite a bit more straightforward in that I was one of those rare people who actually knew exactly what I wanted to do when I was 18 and never changed my mind and it worked out really well so I just went straight into college Uh, Did counseling, got a counseling degree, and then went straight into grad school and then got licensed. So I've been licensed for, I don't know, going on seven years. And I love it.
1: And so you you both, um, probably a year, a little over a year ago, y'all started a podcast, Let's Unravel That. Has (laughs) it been a year? Uh,
2: It's been a couple years. Right? Yeah, I think a year and a half.
3: Yeah.
1: That's crazy. It feels like it was just yesterday, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what was the? How did how did that whole concept happen? And what's the premise behind it? I know I've listened to it, and
2: so our podcast. Um, I had a dream to do a podcast for a few years. Um, my mom had always told me, kind of sarcastically, that I should write a book called "The World According to Leah" because I just had so many freaking opinions and of course now podcasting is the way to get your opinions out not writing books as much as it was back then so um that just i you know i started seeing people doing podcasts and i thought gosh that's that seems really awesome like that seems like a lot of fun and like a fairly easy way to you know get your voice out and say what you want to say of course not as easy as it looks because of all the tech stuff that jen does um but i just i i felt like i wanted i didn't want to do it alone um just didn't feel right i felt like i needed to have somebody along with me and there were a lot of people i knew who i felt like could we could do a really good job but it just never felt right and uh jen and i started getting to know each other and at first it was just us having these really long lunches like every couple of weeks and just talking about everything and I don't know I was in the shower one day and I just really felt like God told me you need to ask Jennifer and I was like cool I like her and um so I did and we talked about it for a few weeks and then got it started and yeah that's really how that started.
1: So when y'all first started what was the premise i know that y'all have done episodes on everything from mental health stuff to vulnerability to sex and all of it i didn't listen to the episode i was afraid i'd blush too much
3: well you we thought
1: i one of the best episodes ever <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> i need to go listen to it don't I? Yeah. I honestly i honestly i really wanted to but i was like I honestly thought, like, I'm going to be riding in my car just, like, blushing the whole time.
3: (laughs) So here's why you would like it. It's really a lot that I think your audience really in particular would would like because Leah and I shared our experience, especially Leah, about the sexual purity culture growing up in the church and the messages that we get about sex, the messages we don't get about sex, and I think that alone made it really helpful. So many people could identify like, yeah, I've got some, I've got some mixed messages. I've got some things I've got to overcome that the church taught me. So,
1: Okay. So I'll go listen to it. I'm definitely I, going to listen to it now. I think that's actually, a, it sounds awesome because I remember going to the uh, little conferences they had, you know, when you're like in. The
2: true Love Waits
1: conferences. Yeah, so yeah. like I I remember. Well, there was one I went to. It was called it was called Youth Celebration, but they didn't spell it like Youth. They just spelled it U T H. And so if they're listening <laughs> to this, I hope they don't hear me <laughs> calling the name of that conference really stupid. But it was the dumbest thing I'd ever heard. But anyway, I remember going to those things, and you know, when you're 14 years old, growing up in a Baptist conservative evangelical setting. Sex is bad. Don't do it. It's for marriage. You know, and that's kind of the message. And I remember going to these things, watching kids sign away their like chastity or whatever. And I just remember even then, not that I was against purity. I mean, I believed in what I thought the Bible talked about it, but I remember just being like, this is so weird that like hundreds of us in this room are just like all flooding the front to sign a thing saying like, we're not going to have sex for God. <laughs> that's the then, strangest freaking well, thing. To do you, you want to chase it.
2: this rabbit? Because we can, I can chase this rabbit.
1: We can go wherever this conversation goes. <laughs>
0: I was just going to well, say too, like, I think, you know, everybody walks down to the front to sign something about their purity. And then that one person that's on the aisle, like, no, I'm not going to do it. Like everybody's like,
2: well, Let me, I'll just say this, that y'all are speaking from the perspective of the men in the room. There was a whole different experience for us as the women, because not only were we getting the message of, yeah, like sex is bad and it's shameful, like just don't talk about it, you know, but also the added layer of we are, our sexuality is specifically for our husbands and it is, it is something that really isn't for us. It is for him, and it's a gift that we give him when we get handed from our father to our husband. And so, you know, for a lot of us, and I have some friends with some stories, you know, from their families, they would go, the women would go through these very ritualistic things like signing the purity contracts, wearing the purity rings. I had friends who at their wedding took off their purity ring and handed it to their dad. And I have friends who, you know, did the purity, uh, retreats and the contracts, but then their brothers were never asked to do it at all. And there was always this metaphor. We talk about this in that episode about like, if you have sex before marriage, then you have a red stain on your wedding dress. Well, there was never any talk about the stain on the man, (laughs) you know?
1: Yeah, I do. I do admit there is a major double standard when it comes to sex between men and women, guys and gals. I mean, yeah,
3: on so many levels. Right. I mean, in the church outside the church everywhere on so many levels.
1: Yeah, so
2: we go into that kind of stuff on the podcast. I think that was your original question is what's the premise and so <laughs> we um we talk about really all the things that come up the most for us in the counseling set in, in the counseling room so I think, that, I think, you know, June, you might have another way of saying it, but that was kind of our vision was um, that we were bringing ourselves as therapists. We weren't just a couple of women sharing opinions, but we were actually bringing our expertise and bringing ourselves. And so we, now we're not necessarily doing therapy, you know, but we're talking about all of those topics that tend to come up the most. So things like boundaries and things like sex and, but we do, Uh, talk a lot about, yes, like the kind of things you guys talking, talk about the messages we get from the church and the theology behind certain things, because that's what people are bringing into the counseling office. That's, those are the things that we're having to help them repair is not just working through those issues, but also the trauma that comes from messages that they got or experiences that they had related to that.
1: So it sounds like It sounds like instead of it being a mental health or a counseling podcast, it's that you guys address topics from across the spectrum, and you just sort of look at these things. I mean, obviously through your Christian upbringing and kind of how you've changed and shifted and grown, but really through the lens of your your counseling and your mental health stuff as well. Is that kind of is that a fair assessment of kind of what you guys do?
2: I mean, I think so. I think isn't that what counseling is? Is it's just people bringing in their stuff, and you know, we're just talking through it and looking yeah. at all of the factors that are influencing that. And so it's just we're just kind of talking about some of those things publicly so that people can, when they're not in the counseling room, they can still be listening to something that's addressing those things. Would you add to that, Jen?
3: Yeah, I'd say, you know, I don't know how to say this in really a professional way, but I think a lot of being a counselor for me, is that I've thought through a lot of things in a deeper way that maybe other people have. I I like to do that. And so when they come in with a struggle, I can add that perspective because I've put in that thought or I have um, put in that conversation with another therapist or I've learned about it in school. So the perspective that I bring, the experience that I bring, the training that I bring, the humanity that I bring is all there with it. And I think that um, it's, it always all, I think all of our episodes always had, you know, a clear, obvious, this is two counselors talking here, right? I mean, like, we never got really away from that because it's who we are. We don't take that hat off and on. Um, but for me, it was also, I think I would add to Aaliyah, say also it's partly me wanting to bring myself as a human and show them that counselors don't have it all together. We still struggle very often. Lee and I both were transparent about some of our own struggles, Um, and I think people need to see that, especially here in the Bible Belt. We don't often see what are perceived as leaders or people who have put in the work who also struggle. We don't we don't talk about that together because that can be messy. I think another thing about the podcast that became really uh, enjoyable for me is that in the counseling office, you know. We are governed by the state, and we are trained to help people, whether they want help from a Christian perspective or not. And that's really driven by the client, if they want to bring spirituality in or not. But on the podcast, that was ours, and I could bring that part of me, because it's very much a part of who who I am, and I could bring that there and not worry that I was infringing on anything. And I really enjoyed that about it, too.
1: So one thing I always think about when I think about, just mental health and and everything is, I mean, probably the, in my opinion, one of the easiest low hanging fruits is depression. And, and really, I mean, I was going to say there's a stigma on the whole thing. I mean, and maybe it's getting better. I'm not really sure. I know I've talked to Nichols a ton. Nichols has seen me in some like crazy depressive bouts. And I know I've talked to Jen about this. Leah, we're going to talk about it right now. Um, (laughs) But yeah, is the stigma still really strong like y'all see it every day i mean is the stigma as bad as what i'm describing is it worse i mean what's what's the deal there
3: i think it's still there i think we are all there's a lot of people that are wanting it to be better we're talking about mental health more i think people are doing a lot of good work to try to take the shame off of it to try to educate about it normalize the process of of depression and the experience of depression but i still think we've got a long way to go because what i hear when people come in and they have clear difficult life events that they've been through where it's no way someone wouldn't experience depression and they cannot stand to admit the fact that this is depression because it might mean that i'm not weak I'm not able to handle this on my own. My spirituality's not strong enough. my support system's not strong enough. you know my resilience isn't strong enough. And so I think just watching clients have such a difficulty saying, Yes, this is what I'm struggling with shows me the stigma's still there. I do find, and Leah, um I think could could bring some insight to this too, my younger clients that are thirty and below ish are much more willing to talk about their mental health. They're much more willing to call it what it is, depression, anxiety, and um, they're much quicker to seek help. Um, I do see a difference there. So maybe it's changing, but I think this stigma is still really
0: prevalent. From my understanding of depression and really into, uh, any mental illness or whatever you want to call it, struggle, I think there's a certain aspect of it that is uh normal i don't know yeah the best way there for it but it is
3: the, a normal human experience
0: yes but also there there's there's also though an aspect of it that goes deeper than the normal in some individuals that i'm not gonna i'm not gonna say this perfectly but I think some individuals can't help it because of maybe they have a chemical imbalance or, or some other things going on there that they have no control over. Do, am I, am I right about that? Or.
2: Is your question, is it possible that someone can suffer from depression and have not be just can't do
0: anything about it? Right. For or example, not have a root cause there you go there you go so
3: yeah Yeah. i I think what i think what you're getting at is like a lot of the people that i see that have true clinical depression like we can diagnose it i can always make sense of or find something that that led to that depression something going on in their life trauma in their past event and i probably would say only a handful of clients have i had that really, I felt like there wasn't this root thing that needed to be worked out. It was a true, just biological, we couldn't find that root kind of a depression. So for me, it was only a handful. I think that's what you might be asking. Leah, I'm curious what you would say about that.
2: Uh, Probably the same. I think it's, I do think that happens where it's truly just a biological thing, but even then, a lot of times clients will maybe assume that that's it because we just haven't been able to pinpoint it yet. Or eventually we even can pinpoint maybe the physiological thing going on. Like if there's hormone or thyroid or autoimmune issues, things like that. So,
1: well, what I was going to say was two things that popped up in my mind while you were talking. The first thing was there were times in my life that I remember it being situational. Like the first time I ever really went to counseling I was going through a divorce. Obviously, there's things happening in my immediate environment that are making me feel a certain kind of way. But I can look back at times. I remember being, I don't know, four, three, four, five, however old I was, and being at my dad's house and sitting in the room and – I remember experiencing a feeling that at the time I probably would have likened to something like boredom. I probably would have said, I'm really bored or something. And I didn't understand how to articulate that. I didn't even understand that it was a different feeling that other people weren't also experiencing. And so when I was feeling this, it wasn't until years later that I went, oh shit, I was depressed. And then the second thing I was going to say was even when I did start really showing signs of depression, it didn't look like what. I maybe had assumed it would look like I wasn't walking around crying and pouting. And I w- you know, I didn't even necessarily feel sad necessarily. In fact, for me, I became a maniac. I was mean and hateful in my anger. And so it just, it came out as this monster, so to speak. And so, you know, I, I still, to this day, I take a little pill every day and freak, I may take that little pill for the rest of my life. I don't know. But even after the divorce stuff happened and when life started getting better and I started, of course I was, I was, you know, doing counseling and I was really digging into the kind of the healing process. But I remember just a year or two ago I was working in my office and I came to work and for no reason, I just felt this numbness. So I shut my office door and I just sat in there and I felt, I, I don't know how to describe a numbness because numbness Insinuates it's almost an absence of feeling, this was very much a feeling, but it was a it's paralytic is maybe a better word for it. I just felt emotionally and even physically just paralyzed by what I was experiencing.
3: what'd you do about that?
1: oh crap it's, hap- <laughs> it's happening
3: i mean you you painted this amazing picture, you let us along. we care about you You're like what happened next
1: okay, so in that specific instance um well the first thing I have to do and this is just me I don't know if this is like healthy or if it's unhealthy or if it's normal but the first thing I did was text Kirsten and I said I would always use the term funk so I'm in a funk and that was my way and I didn't say it because I was scared of the word depression it just seemed like the most comfortable way to articulate it and so the first thing I would do typically is text somebody and just say dude I am I'm in a rut I'm in a funk and Honestly, I think that day I may have texted Kirsten, but by the time that I had experienced this specific little episode, I had obviously done counseling for a long time, read a lot of books that were helpful, listened to a lot of people speak. That was really helpful. I developed a little bit more of an emotional maturity and I had learned about myself. So I think the first thing that I learned was not to, not to feel such an immediate need to accept or reject it. You know, I was sitting there trying to die, not diagnose myself, but trying to figure it out. Why do I feel this way? I'm, you know, and it almost for someone like me who typically I've got a bigger personality, I guess a little bit more outgoing. I'm, I'm pretty driven and goalie oriented oriented to sit there and just feel completely defeated for no reason would typically send me over the edge. So I remember just thinking, you know what? It's okay. I feel like this now. But who's to say in 10 minutes or one hour or one day, I won't feel differently. So I'll just, I'll accept this. I'll do the best I can. My work, I'm in my office. My work is not going to be as good as it normally is, but I'll do what I can and I'll do the best with what I've got. And so it was just a moment of accepting that nothing needs to be any different necessarily and that I'm okay. Even though I don't feel okay, I can still be okay.
2: Well, isn't it interesting that shame always intensifies whatever that feeling is? So if you were ashamed of feeling that way without even becoming curious about it, already it's going to feel more intense. And it doesn't actually do you any good in the long run. I mean, shame is not a good motivator, let alone motivating you to get out of depression, you know? I think it's, I think, you know, It's important to remember, I think, Nichols, maybe you were kind of alluding to this, that there are things that are normal human experiences. In fact, you know, even in diagnosing, there has to be um, a differentiation between clinical diagnosis and normal human experience. For example, bereavement. You can't diagnose someone with depression, you know, three months after they just had a major loss that's bereavement. You know, maybe they are depressed, but we don't know that yet. We don't wanna just be slapping diagnoses on people. Um, And I think that any person, any given day, we're gonna have feelings like that. And part of that is just the normal human response to stress. So when I get super, super stressed, and by the way, I'm I'm a counterphobic six on the Enneagram. So I actually have a lot of anxiety but I tend to not be super aware of it, or at least I wasn't for the first 30 years of my life until I learned I was a six. <laughs> I don't like it. And so I fight, I bulldoze it. And so what will happen for me when I get super, and this happened to me two months ago, whenever this pandemic started at the very beginning, you know, while there was still a little bit of toilet paper on the shelves, I went into panic and so for me what that looks like is planning preparing planning preparing planning preparing and asking the people who I trust to tell me what to do because that's another sixth thing and so what happened is that this panic started to you know my body wants to protect me right and so it's going to start maybe going into some fight or flight and I get that feeling of kind of panicky of racing hard heavy chest things like that but if it keeps going, my body goes into a whole other stage, which is kind of this like freeze stage. And it's where my system kind of locks up. It's almost like, like when an animal plays dead because there's imminent threat. And so it's like, I kind of freeze up. And to me that feels like depression because I sort of become like hypo aroused. And so I'm not going to get a diagnosis of depression or anxiety because I'm having this very intense response to something that is actually really stressful and collectively traumatic. And there's no, if I'm going to shame myself, the thing is my body's just trying to protect me. And so how can I shame my body for just trying to do what it was created to do? you know it doesn't do me any good to try to shame it and fight against it and say why are you doing this you shouldn't feel this way well yeah it should because it perceives a threat now the fact that there's not really a threat maybe an imminent life or death threat is kind of irrelevant my body's perceiving that there is one and it's trying to act on on behalf of me and so I have to learn to get curious about what my body's doing recognize what it's doing Um, For me, it's learning that, okay, what feels like depression is actually a really advanced stage of anxiety and just kind of go along with it. Does that make sense?
3: I think it makes total sense. And I would say that to bring that in the context of this podcast and the church, you know, we, when we experience those things, you know, Leah has paid attention to herself. She's obviously educated on mental health. She's done a lot of work around understanding and being able to put words to her process. I do this, this, and this, and she's made sense of it. And I think inside the church, what we do is the minute we have what could be considered one of those negative emotions, right? Sadness, disappointment, which is always around us, um, depression, um, irritation, anger, even, we are um it's like we're being graded as a Christian, right? And oh there might be something wrong and our our spirituality and our maturity as a Christian can be in question. And I think this is something that Leah and I both feel really strongly about we're kind of champions together of normalizing human experiences even inside of Christianity and um and not shaming for what is normal and that you know um but when we are raised in that, especially uh, the, the kinds of churches where they're non-emotional churches, um, and a lot of that tends to be where those churches where the Holy Spirit's not there, there does tend to be a little less emotion, um, then it's not normalized. We don't know what to do with emotion inside the church, and so shame will come up. This is something we, we aren't going to talk about. We're not going to hear about from the pulpit. We're not going to have it normalized. Or if we do, it's gonna be way after when we can put the bow on it and say, but now I'm good, I overcame that and I never struggle with it anymore. And I just don't think that that's, that's real. And so I think going back to another thing we found from doing the podcast was wanting to talk about experiences like this. That was a perfect example of Leah sharing her own personal experience here with anxiety and depressive feelings and saying, you know, this is not pathological. This is not a spiritual issue. This is a normal human experience.
2: Yeah, that word pathological, uh, one phrase that has really meant a lot to me in learning about my own emotional and mental health and, and the health of others is just saying it's that's not pathological, it's adaptive. To say it's pathological is to say there's no good reason for it, and it's an abnormality having those kind of responses to normal life is not abnormal. Now, those sometimes we do things that are maybe we could call them unhealthy. We could call them dysfunctional in that they're not serving us. They're not getting us to where we want to be. They're not helping our relationships, but that doesn't mean they're not adaptive. So for example, things like really poor boundaries and codependency you know if i have like maybe really enmeshed a codependent relationship with my mom and i am constantly trying to get her approval and i'm letting her walk all over me because i want to keep the peace with her well we could call that pathological but i'm not comfortable doing that i'm saying it's adaptive now is it healthy no is it dysfunctional yes is it causing problems yes but there is a reason that I'm doing it that can go back really far, and that's that I am wired uh, to connect, especially with my primary attachment figure, who is my mother. And so it is. There's nothing abnormal about having that longing. Um, but our humanness, you know, and our 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 maladaptive, so to speak, patterns. Uh, there's a lot that gets in the way of that. And so it, it manifests as something that appears to be very dysfunctional and, and is. but just to, to call something pathological. I mean, I just think we throw that word around a little too loosely.
1: It's funny. So, I felt myself, I felt myself feeling almost a, a sense of release, just, even though I knew this um, already sort of, as you guys were talking about like, no wait, this is your body's way of responding or your, your something deeper than just body. Um, it's its way of responding. Kind of like, you know, when something aches or hurts in your body, you know, like, oh, I may need to get that looked at, or I may need to get that treated. And so, I just, as you were talking, I've I've heard mm-hmm. this language before, but as you were describing this as more of a, a response, and especially when you started talking about, hey, don't shame yourself for something that's naturally happening, so that it can shed light on a deeper issue. Mm-hmm. I just felt this like, ah, and it-
2: that is exactly the point of counseling, right? There's Because me just even describing, if if I can articulate your problem better than you can, you're going to allow me to present you with a solution. And that's also a form of attunement, right? As I'm describing your situation back to you, you feel seen and you feel understood and you feel connected and that is healing.
3: And I would say too, even on the, the psychological, biological side, We are creatures who are, because of of how we're created, we are meaning-making creatures, like it or not, right? Something happens, we search for meaning. What does this mean? And the brain seeks to put things into categories. And so what Leah just described for you is, if I can describe and articulate your your situation, your feelings, your uh, problem better than you can, then I'm gonna have the solution you're going to listen to the solution you're going to trust me but also i would say as we help you articulate as we help you put words to it you know i was feeling numb i was i was feeling depressed disappointed um we're categorizing it and we're, we're the brain is now categorizing that because matt you had experience of these feelings before you had counseling before you had healing um with god before you were able to now identify and call it up quicker So your brain didn't go into that panic, fight or flight mode. It didn't, it's not as tempted to go into that shame mode because you had the words and the category and the definition for it. And the brain seeks those categories. And so it keeps you from getting quite so hijacked.
0: I, when I went to counseling with my wife before she was deployed, uh, one thing that I found the most helpful to go along with what you guys are talking about Um, was that a lot of times I would feel like a, a a terrible husband, or I would be ashamed to cry, or I would, you know, the whole, the whole rigmarole of, of what people go through when they don't have their spouse beside them, they kind of feel all kinds of things. The, the thing that helped me the most with that. And then later on, when my dad passed away, was I learned to sit in my feelings. And what I found was whether it was anger, whether it was sadness, whether I was bawling my eyes out or whether it was a time when I called my dad after he had passed, because I wanted to ask him a question, pulled over to the side of the road, felt it all, cried as much as I could cry and then went about my day. And what i found is you, you become or you feel lighter, you feel more complete, you feel more, yourself when you get through that emotion or that feeling or that depressing moment or whatever it may be in the church, our society, um, whoever it may be, our parents teach us, boys don't cry. Girls don't do X, Y, or Z. I'm not a girl, so I don't know what.
3: (laughs) Well, we're told not to cry too, by the way.
0: Sure. You know, we're told that
3: we need to be strong
0: that's and, true and that's we, true. we
3: don't need to be weak either and we don't need to manipulate with our tears we don't need to be emotional period ever so we're really giving those messages not to cry as well
0: yeah yeah again all i can speak from is my own experience so
2: <laughs> well you know um, we have a whole episode on the podcast about crying and this
3: okay. not <laughs> I think what you're saying, what you're saying Nichols is, is again, another process of why have we been told by society, our family, the church, um, culture ads on TV to go around our emotions, right? Buy this new car and feel great. Um, instead of through it, when we go through it, actually it's a normal human process, spiritually, in our soul and in our in our body to actually feel better. There is relief that's available when we go through it. And I think to a lot of people's credit, we don't go through it because we don't know what that looks like. It's not modeled for us. It's right. not contained for us. It's not, there's no concept of what that looks like. And so we avoid it because we don't know.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I'll take it a step further. When you talk about it not being modeled or laid out, and we don't know, I would even venture to say, in my experience, and many people that grew up in the church, especially in the South, and the kind of stuff that Nichols and I talk about all the time, I remember it It a lot of times it was either A, blatantly made out to be a spiritual thing. Well, have you prayed about it? How's your faith? You know, these types of things. Or, not blatantly, but it's it's one of those things where we we accidentally do damage. And so we may not say, Hey Nichols, uh, you know, there's there's something happening and you, you just, you need to pray more. You've fallen away from the Lord and you need to pray and blah, blah, blah. We may not say that specifically, but we use language that indicates that message underneath. There's a, there's a subtext happening. So no one ever said to me, Matt, your faith is weak. And you know, no one ever said that to me specifically. But no one ever gave me permission, and I think I needed permission, especially me. I was constantly looking for permission mm-hmm. for everything, you know? And wow. so here we are in a church culture that everything is spiritual, and I do believe that everything is spiritual, but not in that way.
0: So let me, let me, ask, you, let me ask you both about a topic that I just learned about. I just learned about the term religious trauma syndrome.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You guys deal with that a lot? Yeah. RTS. Yeah. Yeah. What
3: do you want to know? So, I think I'd call it church burn. Yes.
0: That's the, yes. That's the, you
3: know, lay person. It's, it's church burn. Sure. Yeah.
0: So I, I have a feeling, and I want to know what you guys think about this thought. I feel like they're specifically in Southern evangelical Christianity. There are actually a lot of people walking around. There's an aspect that we kind of just put up in our Southern evangelical society. Does that make sense?
2: Okay. Let me back up a little bit. Okay. Because on what you were saying, Happy, you were saying like, uh, most of the time I was never explicitly told you shouldn't cry and you shouldn't express emotion because that's sinful. Well, the reason you probably weren't explicitly told that is because that's terrible theology. Like, it's really hard to find that, right? Yeah. And so the reason that we're sent those messages is not because, it's not always because the church or people are just interpreting the Bible that poorly. It's because we're dealing with people who are uncomfortable with other people's mess. And where that gets really messy in the church is because of the power differential. We should have a whole episode about this, but there's power differential in the church because By nature, the church is supposed to be a place where vulnerable people come in hurting people. And so they come in with their pain. They come in looking for a safe place. And then you have these people that they're looking to. By default, the structure of the church creates a power differential. Now, that's okay. It's not inherently bad. There's a power differential inherent in counseling. But what that means is that, you know, if I'm talking to you and I'm crying about something and you kind of roll your eyes at me and you're like, maybe you just need to pray about it. Well, I'm just going to probably be like, well, F you. Like, I'm going to go cry. Get over it or my feelings might be a little bit hurt, but I'm also like, you know, you're you're one of my peers. I'm not necessarily looking to you uh, to be a mentor or a leader. I'm not looking to you for the answers. And so that's different in a church setting because you have someone who's really vulnerable and is looking to someone for help. And so when they're sent those messages by someone who is a, in a leadership position, then that's going to create a really deep wound. And so, but a lot of the times it's not, it's not just that like the theology has been misinterpreted, It's that you have church leaders who have not done their own work. They're not self-aware enough. They haven't dealt with their own shame. How could they possibly deal with your mess? They haven't even dealt with their own. And so dealing with yours means that they're going to have to be faced with theirs. And that's just that's what we do, you know. That's why we we're uncomfortable with other people's messes because it triggers ours. It's really hard to separate it, and that's why, you know, I don't think you can be a good therapist unless you have been willing to do some of the work and deal with your own stuff. Otherwise, it's gonna bleed over. And so, like, yeah, it's a it's a church issue, but I, I'm going even a little deeper than that and saying it's a people issue that is magnified and intensified and the wounding is intensified because it takes place in the church where, like I said, there's inherently a power differential.
1: Well, that's, that's really interesting because Nichols and I both can speak, you know, Nichols can speak about mental health from just psychology stuff and then having worked in certain jobs and things like that. Uh, we can also speak to the pastoral side and I'll be the first one to say, and I know this isn't gonna be popular, but I think pastors are some of, let, okay, let me, let me zoom out a little bit. I think some pastors are some of the most unhealthy people I've ever met because it's like you said, there's a, there's a, and I sound like a bitter Christian to so screw off, but whatever. <laughs> it, there, it, there's something about it. There's especially kind of the mainstream church as we see it today in 2020, we promote the ego, we promote the position, we promote the marketing strategies, we promote all this stuff that centers around people and performance and platform and all of it. And so why in the hell would I ever be honest as a pastor or a leader about anything that I'm experiencing or going through? I hid behind my pastoral mask for years. And so if I'm doing that, how in the world would I ever be able to honestly sit down with anybody and have a real conversation that promotes vulnerability and inner strength and self-awareness? I think, again, I'm not going to say pastors in general because I'll be getting freaking emails, but, but I think there's a lot of pastors who are not healthy, aware people. But again, we've put them on this platform and said, yeah, you can listen to them.
3: This ties in with what Nicholas said um, on this RTS, religious trauma syndrome. So if we think about trauma and some of what defines it, we know that two people can go through the same experience and one have trauma and one not. And one of the components there that causes trauma is when somebody goes through something very fearful, painful, difficult, um, an, an event and they're alone. So Matt, when we have pastors who are leaders or parents who act the way that you just described, right? Like I've got all my acts together and I'm so spiritual and that's why my act together is together. That can isolate us. That's part of that, that power differential, but it's also this isolation. And so when I'm over here in the pew, and I love Jesus and I'm listening and I'm trying, but I'm struggling too, that can be part of the trauma right? Because I'm alone in it. Nobody's entering in. Nobody's helping me. Nobody's, you know, um, guiding me through of what it means to get healing from this. Nobody's with me in the mess, entering in, in the process that takes time. And so I can feel really alone, which is where some of the trauma comes in. And I think part of this is that whole aspect of in the church we like things to in the world we like things to be really certain clear and um definable i mean we feel that way right now in the middle of COVID 19 right we want certainty we want clarity we want definable we want to know and we're feeling that more than ever and that's really not new and so when we come into the church we want to know the path we want to know the way like, what is the way to overcome my shame what is the way to overcome my fear how can i feel better and how can i achieve and be shiny and pretty like you are on your production stage but we don't really um talk about what that process is or we make it really light and superficial and we don't get into the weeds with people and you know what my my where I am now, I've been seeking the understanding of what it means to have healing in Christ for years. I don't think there's just one way. I don't think there is a one-way straight shot. We draw a line from A to B and we're there. It kind of can be all over the place because God is not a one shot kind of God. He's creative, infinitely so, and so it can look a lot of different ways. And it goes back to kind of what you were saying earlier, Matt, when you're saying that day that you had where you were feeling this funk in this kind of way. And by the way, that's how one way we can know it's a funk and not depression because it's a day. It's a moment when they add up. Then we start looking at, hey, is this something deeper? But we all have the right to have a day where we have a funk. Um, you, the first thing you did was reach. You reach to your significant other. That's one of the most healthy things to do is to reach. Who's a counselor also. Right. That helps, right? Pretty smart (laughs) move there. Um, But that that helps us not be alone. That helps us even give ourselves permission to have this funk, to have this anxiety. Because if I can reach and tell you then I'm giving myself permission to have it. And I'm kind of fighting shame when I talk about it out loud and you you got curious about it and you wanted perspective about it you gave yourself permission you know i'm here today i'm not going to have that great of a day and i'm going to get curious and see what's going on and then we have what leah said about you know a lot of times we can look especially at attachment and see how you had to adapt to survive emotionally <laughs> and put it into the context of that and then we can start to really make sense of what's going on and i think that's part of what we do with jesus right we reach to him when we don't have shame we can reach to him and say god i'm feeling this way this is going on you know my feeling is a signal to go pray about it but what do we what does that even look like well it's like jesus this is how i'm feeling and i don't know what's going on and i know that you don't judge me any less so i can i can bear my soul here i'm not that dog that's been kicked in the corner because i'm feeling this way. And I can invite his perspective into that. And I think a lot of times we, we kind of don't do that with Jesus, because we want that perspective right in, in that prayer, in that moment, like before I say, amen, he better have told me something or he's not there for me, right? Because I can Google anything. I can talk to a friend, they can give me all kinds of advice, or I could pop a pill. And I'm not against that. I'm just saying it's instant. And so being able to sit with it, like you said, Matt, you know, uh, Nichols, I can sit with it. It gives me time for it to unveil because if this is something that's been going on in the context of my, my childhood and my attachment, it's gonna take a while to unravel it and see it. You know what? The earth is not gonna stop if I don't figure this out in twenty four hours.
1: You know what's interesting about what you said, I, I realized something about me and so I'll I'll put the I'll put the magnifying glass on me and not all the pastors out there for a second. But when you were describing, I can go to God, I can, I can talk to God and these kind of things. And I know he's not going to judge me less. And I always tried that, but my belief in God was not there. So I'm reaching to a God. I don't even believe gives a crap. Now I would never have said it like that, but ultimately I was praying to, to an, to a, an idea of God. I was praying to what, what I wish God was.
3: Yeah, or to a God who was punishing you because you weren't following all the rules, and not a God who says, enter into my rest, which mm-hmm. means cease all work and striving, which is kind of the, the Paul Young podcast, right? Uh, uh, like, your job is to enter into my rest. I've got this. But we don't, we don't understand that kind of God when we're raised in legalistic churches that are all about how it looks on the outside and doing right and wrong. And we've got to be really clear and know right and wrong and follow it so that we feel safe and controlled. And so, yeah, that's one of the questions when I do have a client who says, yes, I want spirituality to be a part of my counseling. I always ask them, what is your view of God? Like visually, what does he look like to you? Who do you believe he is? What is that vision? You know, who is God to you? Because I think ultimately that's where we're getting is how do I view myself how do I view God? How do I think God views me? and how do I think others view me? And when we can do work around those things, healing can really happen.
1: That's so funny because those four things, all of them were very skewed for me. my sense of self, my sense of God, my sense of others' perception of me, all of it. It's and like for
3: most people, it is matt it's It's pretty rare. I mean Leah wouldn't wouldn't you say that it's pretty rare that that we don't yeah. reach 30 40 years old and have a huge view of ourselves of God of how others view us. If, oh, if I could be
0: kind of vulnerable for a second with those four things you just mentioned, I feel like in the last oh two years I just said screw this I'm brushing all that off the table and just assuming I don't know I don't know who I am I don't know who God is I don't know blah 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 and became and started to become okay with not knowing and then I started to put the pieces back together and it's been really freeing it's been really beautiful figuring out what what I like to do what I don't like to do because I didn't know was for a long time because I chased after the dream of being a pastor. So when I brushed all, all that off the the table, it became less hectic, less like, and maybe not all of it. Like I didn't just brush off. Like, I don't know if God loves me or, you know, things like that. Like I still believe in Jesus, still, still am a Christian, still I'm all that. But I would say I battled with it.
2: Battle with what
0: exactly? Just being a Christian, no, knowing who God was, like mm-hmm. stuff like that for a, for a while, and I feel like I've I've definitely not all of it, but put a lot of the pieces back together. Um, stopped assuming things and actually really trusting, hoping, and nope, I know X, Y, and Z is true. That's how we operate because that's what we've always been told. Um, so instead really finding out for myself, exploring who God is, um, exploring who Jesus was, looking at different opinions, uh, even theologies, when, when you get rid of the certainty and you and you kick out being married to certainty, you begin to be okay with questions and that cognitive dissonance. We always say that freaking word. No, <laughs> we don't always say it. I do, yeah. Um, but being okay with that cognitive dissonance, being okay with not knowing, being okay with things uh, has been really beautiful for me.
2: Yeah, and I would say certainty, yes, we crave that, but we also just crave safety and there's safety in what's familiar and sometimes we feel safe with even the most dysfunctional things if they're familiar you know it's like you see some people in relationships that are totally dysfunctional and they'll say i feel like i've known them forever well you probably have you know (laughs) you probably married your mother (laughs) so there's safety and familiarity and so you know we we cling on to that and we cling on to what's familiar even if it's dysfunctional and i think you know when we use the word deconstruction another word that i would maybe use for that is differentiation i'm learning to differentiate god from religion and i have no problem with organized religion but it is not god and so that's where i think People can be vulnerable and susceptible to religious trauma um, is obviously like there's there's unfortunately there are people and there are pastors out there who are abusive and wounds people and that is that is real but I also think that sometimes what can cause trauma is that people haven't differentiated God from those people who are saying that they represent him so when they are wounded by the pastor, they feel that they've been wounded and abandoned by God. Whereas, like Jim was saying, when we reach for someone, a safe presence, and we don't feel abandoned, that's a protective factor against trauma. So I can, you know, the pastor could be a real jerk to me, but I know that I can always go to the Lord who's going to attune to me and empathize with me, and I'm not abandoned in that. Um, But, you know, you can't even really judge people for not being able to differentiate that because it's just not something we're necessarily taught. And, you know, the the thing is, the people who teach us that God is, you know, our religion, um, and that that's the only way to experience God, you know, they're wounded too. They've gotten messages. And so it's just this ongoing thing. But um, yeah, I, I, we talk a lot about the deconstruction, you know, this process of just kind of going. I, I, I like that word, and I like that concept. A lot of people, I've. it's becoming a little more, I don't want to say trendy, It's being a lot more talked about, you know.
0: Oh,
1: it's so become trendy. <laughs> yeah, we, we, always, we always feel is. a little cliche saying it, but it really is an appropriate word.
2: But I, really I, I hope it
3: yeah. is, because we do need to, de- if, if most of us have, this view of God that is very distant or punishing or doesn't care, or then we need to deconstruct that. And even if the the religious beliefs and practices that we've held are true, we need to deconstruct it and rebuild it for ourselves so that we know that it's true. You know, I don't, I think, I think it's great. that It's become trendy. We don't need to I, be afraid yeah. of it.
1: I do too. And I, one thing I always say, and that I always think about is that when we do that, when we allow ourselves to go into that process, we either A, change what we think, or it completely reinforces what you already believe. And in my opinion, when that happens, because I've had that happen as well, it's not like everything I believe that I deconstructed, I completely abandon. I came back to the same thoughts on certain things. And when that happened, it, it brought meaning and substance. And I understood, you know, there was an understanding and clarity that was with that thing that I thought.
0: I would agree with that for sure because because the God that I had grown up to know was a very angry God and and did not approve with half of the stuff that I did and blah 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 so whenever I did deconstruct I unraveled a lot of that stuff and rebuilt it in a much better not better much more clear um
1: I think that's better. Uh,
0: uh, Just a clear, uh, a more clear way of, uh, or understanding, if you will. So uh, Leah described a lot of what I was trying to say perfectly.
2: Yeah, I'll add a little bit of personal, whatever. I have experienced a lot of deconstruction over the last few years, but what I have realized is that for me, it hasn't been a deconstruction of faith. It's been a deconstruction of religion and church. And so I've had to really wrestle with a lot of feelings and a lot of beliefs and thoughts that I have about the way church is done and the way Christianity is done. But God has only become more real to me and has only been, like you said, it has reinforced the goodness of God. My theology hasn't really changed. It's evolved some, you know, and I, I, I used to think, I never saw God as like, this angry God, but I did see him as like kind of snobby, you know, like he was for sure Baptist. <laughs> and but I think that's I,
1: actually true though.
2: Well, that's, I, I'm telling as you like, one of my professors literally said that Jesus was the original Baptist. Wow. Anyway. So, but the thing is, is that I did not grow up in a home where that was pushed so my parents identified as christians but we really didn't go to church like i was the first person in my family to become as we would as dc talk would have said it back then a jesus freak (laughs) so so, and then my family started coming along so i didn't have like when i i was never taught the bible until i decided when i was in middle school i'm gonna sit down and read this thing and so I had the, the advantage of not having to unravel a whole lot of that crap from, you know the way I was raised.
3: Uh-huh. It
2: really was just uh, but I was very much, when I got into it, immersed in the purity culture and the very like conservative, cessationist, um, that culture. And those are the things I had to unlearn. But at the same time, I do acknowledge that for most people well, I'm not going to say most, for a lot of people, they they have experiences that actually are traumatic um they've been through abuse or they have been raised from birth with the pressure to believe a certain way and so and uh, so many mental health issues come from this you know like we're talking about mental health trauma the effects of trauma it's a mental health thing and when we feel like we're not allowed to really explore what's going on with us when we feel like we're abandoned, when we aren't able to separate God from the church. And so then we feel like he's abandoned us. Then, you know, of course, we're going to feel like crap all the time.
1: Yeah. So I guess as we kind of wrap up and, and lead toward the conclusion, what is what final thoughts might you leave for listeners when it comes to just the stuff we've kind of been talking about unraveling?
3: Well, one I could I could answer that in about an hour, um, <laughs> but I won't. Um, so just so the listeners know, I'm, I'm narrowing this down because because this is the context here of spirituality and church and mental health. I'll say that it's experience or life experiences that bring us to wherever we are, even if that is in what we might call unhealthy mental state or a difficult mental health challenge, right? And I believe, spiritually, what will help us heal from that is also experience. And part of like what Nichols talked about that we're unraveling is these beliefs we had about God, these beliefs we had about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be me um, versus all the other Christians or versus all the other non-Christians. You know, it's those experiences, and it's going to take experience to heal that. And we can't always just create that in an instant. And that's why it's a process. And I think this is why, how even, you know, Leah and I have talked about attachment. And man, there's so much about attachment that is the context of why we are who we are and how God is the perfect attachment figure and how healing and experience with Him as the perfect attachment figure when our view of Him is in line with, with who He really is is, is healing. Um, and I think ultimately, because of grace, most of us are going to be okay. Most of us who call ourselves Christians, follow Jesus, we're going to be okay. That's the rest. And when Matt or Nichols said, "There's so much I don't have figured out," I don't think we have to have it all figured out. And and like we forget, I loved the the Paul Young you know um, episode about how he said for him right he was raised where the Trinity was. God, the Son, and the Holy Bible, mm-hmm. and I was raised like that too, and I think we can't miss the Spirit, and the Spirit's what provides experience, That's is why Jesus said, I have to go, because your whole experience, and the people who aren't going to be able to touch me and hear me, they need the Spirit to have experience, that's why it was so important, but I think that sometimes, because we've been so hurt in church, we abandon the Bible, and you know, so many times I have clients and people say they can't be mad at God. And I'm like, the Psalms, David, like he, he experienced every emotion it's possible to experience. He experienced in, in fullness and bigness. And he was God's beloved. And so, you know, it, permission granted right there in the middle of the Bible to be human and have this experience with God. And that's what brings us close to him. So it gives us permission to be human and who we are. And I think rest is available there. Um, I love that you guys are talking about this. I love that um, people who would listen to your podcast aren't the same people that would listen to ours. And it's it's important to do, to to give ourselves permission and not have it all figured out, but to keep seeking and keep reaching.
2: Well, um, you know, I love, Doing counseling with people who are going through either a deconstruction or a process of, you know, healing through trauma, especially religious trauma. Um, I, I, I don't take pleasure in their pain, but I, I love getting the chance to help people work through that. And I think that one of the big things I've learned is that there's so much Identity work and questions of identity that need to be addressed when we're working through issues of deconstruction and of of course people who are going through this are gonna feel a lot of a lot of anxiety and a lot of even depression and as we start working it might even trigger some trauma and so it's all very woven together Um, but you know when we're working through this one of the questions that is often needs to be asked is and it sounds a little cliche, maybe. but what's your identity being placed in? Because if your identity is in like I want, I want to be in the spotlight um, or even a little bit deeper than that, you know, for for a six, you know our core need is safety and security. And so if i'm I'm placing all my hope in that, then I'm gonna look for the things. That make me feel safe and secure and the minute that one of my pastors says something that makes me feel unsafe or insecure or not taken care of or protected or disloyal then i'm going to i'm going to have a strong reaction to that yeah and and i'm you know and i might really where if my goal in life is to be a pastor and i place all my self-worth in that every bit of my worthiness into accomplishing this thing if i'm placing all my worth in that then when i'm not promoted i'm gonna go through an identity crisis and it's gonna it's a whole lot easier
0: she's reading my mail right now
2: <laughs> it's it's a whole lot easier to blame the church because the church actually does do some things wrong. You know, the church actually does do that thing sometimes where we promote this culture of performance. And so then it feels like, well, that's the problem, that the church and the culture of the church is the thing that has caused my trauma, when really it's that, combined with the fact that I grew up in a home where the only way I got attention from my dad is if I was performing perfectly. And the only way that I got affirmation from my mom was when I was being morally perfect. Hmm. And so, you know, you take all that, well, being a pastor, that's, that's perfect for me. And I have all this performance anxiety and my, my sense of self is really shaky and really fragile, if anything can threaten it. And I combine that with other wounded people who I'm secretly competing with and secretly want their approval. And it's just a mess and it's a perfect storm that's gonna lead to trauma and it's gonna lead to bitterness and then we don't even know who the hell God is. And so we don't know how to separate that from who God is himself. And so what we go through is this deconstruction and if other people think we're you know, losing our faith and maybe it is we actually are a little bit because we haven't figured out how to differentiate those things. It, I think it just all goes back to identity. And I don't just mean like know who you are in Christ, know what the Bible says about you. But I mean, like, we need to go deep and we need to talk about like, what is it that, what what did the church trigger? Not just what did they do to you that was wrong or unhealthy, but what are the wounds that were actually triggered that need to be healed? Because if we aren't in touch with that and can't get healing from that, we're going to have a really hard time seeing through that to be able to really have a clear understanding of what actually happened and what's going on with us. Does that make sense?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, my mind's a little blown. I feel like I got a free counseling session. Is that fair? (laughs) Is that okay?
2: We'll send you a bill.
1: No, don't do that. (laughs) Well, thank you both for joining us. Um, We're going to put some, um, we'll put some info about you guys in the show notes and stuff like that, about your podcast and all the things. So, but yeah, thanks for hanging out with us. We've been really looking forward to this for several weeks now. So,
2: thanks,
1: David. All, all right, thanks, y'all. Y'all have a good night.
2: All right, you Love too. You guys. Bye.